There's some songs that just never get old, no matter how many times you sing them. Thank you, Brian and worship team, for leading us this morning. I'm glad to be with you this morning and privileged to get to open God's Word with you. Our passage this morning will be Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. If you have uh, your own copy of God's Word, if not, uh, it'll be on page 812 in a pew Bible that should be around you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. We welcome you to take that home. A few announcements as you're finding your way there. Uh, First, I want to address the most pressing thing that's on everyone's mind, and that is that Stella the Pig, uh, the Grace Fellowship Pig, is doing well. I received word this morning that Embry Cox is taking great care of her. So uh, we came this close to starting a Grace Fellowship petting zoo. So, uh, but... If you haven't heard the pig story, I couldn't find a way to work that into the sermon anywhere this morning, so you can come and ask me later. But um, in all seriousness, a few announcements. First is if we have any uh, kids, grades 7 through 12, uh, the offer is still good for Ridgehaven, but I need you to let me know today if you're planning on going. Uh, I believe right now we have 30 confirmed signed up, and that's just kids. So this is by far our biggest group that we've taken, so I'm really looking forward to the trip even managed to uh, coerce Tyler and Allie Kleckler and Lucy Edwards into going as chaperones. So this will be their first time, but we're excited about that. Also have a parent conference going on October 25th. Uh, so if you are, or excuse me, October 22nd. So that's just in a few weeks. But we're going to have food here. We'll share a meal. And then we have got two couples who are veteran parents coming to basically have a panel uh, on stage. We'll give you a chance to submit questions to them. And we're going to give them just a chance to share with us uh, the things they would do different if they could go back and start over in their parenting journey, the ways they've seen God be faithful uh, to them. We think that'll be a really good night, but we do need a head count for that as well. So there's a sign-up sheet both for Ridgehaven and the parent conference that are on the table in the four years you exit. But please sign up for that today. Next, uh, our fall festival. We are going to do a fall festival here at the church. That's going to be Wednesday, October 25th. We'll do kind of a potluck-style meal. Uh, I think we'll have an inflatable for the kids, right? And so it'll be a really fun night of fellowship, but that's on the 25th. Uh, We welcome you to dress up. Um, Kaylee's already got our costume planned. It's going to be awesome. Just prepare yourself for that. And then lastly, if we have anybody sitting in the foyer today, I wanted to let you know that we have got some screens on the way. We're going to be hanging TVs in the foyer where you'll be able to see the broadcast of what's going on in the sanctuary as well as the lyrics for the songs will be in the foyer. So that's coming in a few weeks. Uh, so just know we are continuing to try and deal with this great problem we have of running out of space. So we're thankful for that. It's all the announcements I have for you this morning. So we come to the passage just to remind you for the past few weeks... We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus gave where he teaches on a wide range of topics to tell us what life in his kingdom is going to look like, what followers of his will look like. And so today we're going to look at the conclusion to his sermon where he leaves us with a sobering warning and a really gracious invitation. So Matthew 7, 21 through 29 is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him and ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Lord Jesus, these are difficult words, frightening words. And Lord, I often feel two common temptations uh, when coming to a passage like this. Lord, on one hand, it's easy to sugarcoat your warnings, to try and minimize the severity of what it is you're saying to us. Lord, the other is to become paralyzed by fear. Lord, we pray that you would keep us out of both of those ditches this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to heed the warnings of Jesus so that we can know the fullness of life that he offers to us both now and forever. Amen. So, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you were sincerely confident about your ability to do something, and then you soon realized that your confidence was misplaced. So, maybe for you that was a house project where you overestimated your skill, bit off a little bit more than you can chew. Maybe it was a job that you took where you thought that you understood what all went into this job, but you get into it and realize that you're over your head. You didn't know how much you didn't know. For me, when I think about a time of misplaced confidence in myself, my mind goes back to sixth grade. Uh, We were at Clanton Middle School in PE, and I had never played tackle football before. In fact, I really didn't even know how the sport worked. Um, And not only that, but I stood roughly a head shorter than everybody, had never darkened the door of a gym in my life. And here we are playing tackle football. And my teenage confidence, let me tell you, was undeterred, right? Teenage confidence is undefeated. So I knew that in spite of my ignorance of the sport, my physical lack of ability, we'll say, I knew that I was going to be a real asset to my team. Just pick me, okay? So I was picked probably dead last, but that's beside the point. First series, I run a little shallow out route. Quarterback throws me the ball. I make the catch. I'm feeling myself, you know, so I know what to do at this point. I've watched this before. So I turn around, square up my shoulders, and I see a defender running with a full head of steam to make the tackle. And I knew I'm going to knock him over, right? Like he thinks he's about to tackle me. He's wrong. So I was very confident. Instead of bowling over this defender, what ended up happening was I ended up flying backwards through the air. I think that my soul left my body. And being the incredible athlete that I was, I landed with my arm behind my back, broke two bones in my arm. And so where the game began was so much promise, so much confidence in my ability to dominate the sport. The way that it ended was me being carried off the field like a damsel in distress, like literally cradled by the guy that tackled me, carried me to the nurse's office where I cried until my mom came to pick me up. So my my confidence was genuine. It was a sincere confidence. It was just sincerely wrong. 
And in one definitive, fateful moment, I realized that I had no reason for being as confident as I was. We've all had those moments. Here as Jesus brings his sermon to a close. Jesus tells two stories about people who were very confident. Their confidence was sincere that they belonged to him, that they were in the kingdom, only to find out that their confidence was misplaced. In these few verses, Jesus calls us to examine what it is that gives us assurance. What gives us confidence about our belonging to him and our place in his kingdom He's calling us to really look at ourselves and examine whether, like Kevin preached last week, whether we are on the narrow path or the broad path. And we're going to see this morning, he gives us two warnings and an invitation. So, warning number one, Jesus says, don't just profess his name, verses 21 through 23. Now, what do I mean when I say profess his name? What does it mean to profess the name of Jesus? Well, to profess the name of Jesus means to make a public declaration of allegiance, to publicly say that I know Jesus and I belong to him. And there are two ways to profess the name of Jesus. The first that we see here is a verbal profession. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus paints a picture of the last day, and he describes people approaching his seat of judgment, making a verbal profession, Lord, Lord. Now, on its face, this seems great. This address, the way that they approach Jesus, it is, first, it's, it's polite. To come and say, Lord, Lord, in this culture was like saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. It's polite. It's a sign of respect and admiration. But not only is it polite, it's also orthodox. It's theologically sound. These are people who thought they were following Jesus. So when they call Jesus Lord, I don't think they're just intending on being polite. That word, that title, Lord, comes from the Hebrew name for Yahweh, for God, his personal name. So on some level, they knew that Jesus was more than a good person and teacher. So it's polite, it's theologically sound, but it's also fervent. You can hear, when you say, Lord, Lord, that repetition is emphatic. It's not cold and withdrawn and indifferent. It's warm, it's passionate. And they didn't just profess him verbally, they also professed him in deed, doing many mighty deeds in his name. Verse 22 says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? They did lots of impressive things that I doubt you and I can claim to have on our spiritual resumes this morning. And they've done them all in the name of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't question whether or not these things are true. And I don't think we should either. Jesus doesn't stop them and say, whoa, whoa, chill out, buddy. Did you actually cast out a demon? Did you actually prophesy? Jesus doesn't question. In fact, in Matthew 24, verse 24, he says this, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus makes it clear that there will be people to arise who will do things in his name, that actually do not know him and do not belong to his kingdom. 
But what Jesus is saying here is that actually doing mighty things in the name of Jesus is no guarantee of actually belonging to him. So after they make their public profession, Jesus makes his own public profession. But unlike theirs, his is true. He says this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what was wrong with their profession? Was there anything inherently wrong with what they said or what they did? And themselves, no. The problem was that they lacked something. In the words of Jesus, they were lawless people who did not do the will of his father. So although publicly they used impressive words and did impressive things, and they even had results to show for it, they privately lacked obedience. Now I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, Depart from me, you who continue to struggle with sin, you who imperfectly obeys me. No, Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. Their lives were marked by a persistent pattern of willful disobedience. They were boasting in all the things that Jesus never commanded them to do while ignoring the very straightforward things that Jesus did command them to do. They were happy to use the name of Jesus publicly, but when rubber met the road, their lives were not marked by any pursuit of holiness and obedience. And the thing is, you and I are not beyond that same kind of self-deception of having that misplaced confidence. How easy is it to live disintegrated lives where we are more concerned about the external, what people can see and what people can hear and what gets us recognition than we are with the very ordinary obedience that only God sees often. As good and right as a public profession of Jesus is, both in word and in deed, the problem is, is that their lives actually proved that their profession was not sincere. And Jesus gives a second warning. This is our second warning. It's not only, not only is it not enough to profess the name of Jesus, both in word and deed, it's also not enough to just listen to the words of Jesus. He tells a short story, short parable about two people who built two different houses on different foundations. The first person, he says, built their house on the rock. The second person built their house on the sand. If we take a little creative liberty with this parable, I kind of imagine two neighbors building homes next to one another, trying to make sure their home was the most impressive one. And no doubt both of these homes were nice. They looked very impressive from the outside. And once they were both built, Jesus says that a storm blows up, one that causes rivers to rise and brought winds to beat against that house. I don't know if you remember back in the the blur that is 2020 at this point. But one of the many things, uh, crazy things that happened in 2020 was the straight line winds that came through Clanton. I don't know if you remember that. But I, Kaylee's always the one that's panicking over storms. I'm not wired that way. I'm like the let's run out with an American flag and a shotgun at the tornado kind of guy. And so when she wakes up and hears the wind howling, she immediately gets nervous. And I'm like, it's fine, it's fine. Well, next thing I know, the wind has like shoved the grill off the deck and I see our table and chairs go flying into the backyard off the back deck. 
And I could feel the wind beating against the house. Fortunately, though, Josh Smitherman built my house on a good foundation, so the house didn't go anywhere. But I picture a storm a lot like that, one that is absolutely terrifying to be in the center of. And Jesus tells us that these homes had two very different outcomes. The house that was built on the rock withstood the storm, and the one that was built on the sand was utterly decimated. And he says, great was its destruction. So the one on the rock, Jesus says, is the one who hears his words and does them. The one on the sand was someone who only heard the words of Jesus but did not do them. Here, Jesus says, is another danger, that we would hear his words and maybe even be impressed by his words, but not actually obey them. I don't know if you've ever been to like an art museum. Birmingham has a terrific little art museum if you've never been up there. I don't know a lot about art, but I enjoy looking at it when I see it. And if you walk through an art museum, you just stand with people pretty silently and just admire the art, right? Because there's really nothing else to do with it but admire it. Sometimes we can treat the, G- the, the teachings of Jesus like this as well. We think the teachings of Jesus are like a painting, just something to merely be admired. But they're not. Like professing Jesus, listening to his words is a good thing. And we're called over and over in Scripture to meditate on Scripture But the aim of meditating on Scripture, the aim of studying Scripture, listening to what Jesus has to say, is not simply to admire it, but it's to let the words sink in deeply and have a transforming effect on our lives. Jesus' words are meant to be obeyed. And what is it that reveals the difference between these two homes? What ultimately revealed what was so different about these two? It was the storm. It's trials and difficulty and suffering that really show us what our foundation is made of, whether it's sturdy or not. And a foundation from the outside of the home is not the most impressive feature of a house. It's not showy, it doesn't offer curb appeal, but it's crucial. In the same way, Jesus is saying that obeying his words, it's often very unimpressive. Certainly not as eye-catching as casting out demons or prophesying in his name. Yet when the storm comes, those who have been quietly and faithfully plugging along, those who have had that long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson says, their life will not be decimated by the storm. Their house may need some new shingles after that storm or a yard cleanup, but the house will be intact. It will be standing because of the quality of the foundation it was built on. those who only hear the words of Jesus, who only admire them without acting on them. Jesus says that they have a false confidence that will be exposed. So we have two false confidences that we can have that Jesus warns us about, ways that we can deceive ourselves and not actually be what we think we are. And these words, these words are meant to make us check up and examine ourselves. Jesus is saying that paying lip service to him, doing mighty things in his name, and even listening intently to his words, these things are not a trustworthy foundation. They are no guarantee that we belong to him. So what do we do if we're questioning our own assurance right now? 
What if our foundation feels a little bit shaky? I want you to know that Jesus, the purpose of his warnings, it's not to paralyze us and make us despair like the end is already determined. We all know that warnings are scary, but they always come with an implied invitation. If you are heading down a road at 60 miles an hour, if I'm heading down 82 to Tuscaloosa, and there's a sign that says, bridge out up ahead, that is a warning with very real implications and very real consequences if I do not heed that warning. If I'm doing 70 miles an hour on 82, and I know that there's a bridge out up ahead, that is a dangerous thing that is up ahead. But the whole point of that sign is to invite us, to appeal to us, to take a different route. And this makes Jesus' warnings an incredible act of kindness. The reason that Jesus goes out of his way to give hard words like these is because he knew that his hearers, people like me and you, because we're still breathing, we still have time to evaluate our foundation and build wisely from here. So we shouldn't live like the end is already determined or despair when we encounter these warnings. We're meant to see the heart behind it that invites us to choose wisely, to live differently. So let's look at this, the invitation that Jesus gives, building your life on his words. There are two things I think we have to deal with when thinking about building our life on Jesus' words. First thing we have to deal with is, how can I know that Jesus' words are trustworthy? The invitation to build my life on his words means that I'm forsaken confidence in all other authorities, and I'm choosing to build exclusively on him. How do I know that it's, that it's actually a sturdy foundation. Verses 28 and 29, I want you to hear the reaction from the audience again when Jesus finishes his teaching. It says, And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I want you to notice that as surprised and in awe as this audience was at what Jesus said, what stood out more to them was the authority with which he said those things. It was very common to have traveling teachers in this day, and they were all appealing to other authorities to prove that they were right. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come appealing to other authorities. He came saying that he was the authority. So this means that we cannot separate the words of Jesus from the work of Jesus. There is no separating who he is and who he claims to be from his teaching. So if he is indeed the Son of God, the one who will come back to judge everything and everyone, if he really was raised from the dead, then that means everything that he says is not only totally trustworthy, but binding on our conscience. So Jesus is trustworthy because he is the authority. The second thing we have to deal with is this idea that Jesus says that obedience is foundational to the Christian life. I wonder if you checked up a little bit when Jesus said that. That the foundation, the solid rock that the person built their house on, he doesn't say, was faith alone in me. He said it was doing my words. If you've been around church for any amount of time, certainly our church... You might rightfully be going, no, whoa, 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 hang on. We're saved by faith alone. That's the foundation of our salvation. And you would be 100% right in that. 
We're not saved by bringing anything to the table. We don't contribute anything to the work of Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, and we receive it through faith alone. But therein lies the issue. What is faith? What is faith that really saves? Another word that we often use for faith is trust. It's trusting Jesus alone, meaning that we trust Jesus more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust other people who make appeals to authority. And that's really the point, is that if we say that we trust Jesus but we don't obey him, what that's really revealing is that we do not trust him as much as we say we do. We don't have the faith we claim to have. Jesus' half-brother James, we already used James to confess uh, our sin earlier. Hear what James says in chapter 2. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Real trust in Jesus means that we trust him in every area of our lives, that we submit to his words and we obey them. If you have ever watched The Office, it's one of like the greatest TV shows ever made, right? And one of my favorite scenes in The Office is when Ryan, this like kind of punk intern guy who always thinks he's so qualified, so intelligent, and he has this great line where he looks at the camera and he says, lead me. But like when I want to be led. This idea that, yeah, of course I want your input. Of course I want to be led and taught. But just when I feel like it. There's a comfortable brand of Christianity being peddled that sounds a lot like this. Happy to accept parts of Jesus' teaching in areas we're comfortable with. But we ignore the teaching that we don't like so much. When we come to Jesus like that, much like Ryan in the office, what we're revealing is that we really don't want to be led. We really don't trust the person that we say we're trusting. Real trust shows itself in obedience. And that means that actually what is behind all of our disobedience is a lapse in faith. It's not a lack of willpower, but it's unbelief. So in the moments that I sin, in the moments that I give in to my own desires, I'm trusting my own desires and my justifications over the words and teachings of Jesus, that's unbelief. So really, there is no way to separate growing in faith from growing in obedience. They are two sides of the same coin. Now, faith and obedience are joined together. What is it exactly that we're trusting in? Because you and I, I'm trusting we know since we're here this morning, we have some indication that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He's not less than that, but he is more than that. Friends, I want you to hear the good news of the gospel. That Jesus is not shocked by our inability to perfectly obey. If we just needed someone to come along and tell us exactly what to do, then the scriptures would have ended at Exodus 20, your Bible would be a lot lighter, and Jesus would have had no reason to come. If that's all we needed was just more rules or an example of how to live, we would have been set a long time ago. 
And time and time again, what we prove with our lives is that on our own, we are unable to obey. And so what God does in his loving kindness is he sends to us his perfect son to live the life that you and I should have lived, never failing to perfectly trust God, never failing to perfectly obey him. When the storms of life came, Jesus persevered and continued to trust and continued to obey. And then he died the death that we should have lived. And that righteousness, that perfect record of obedience gets placed on us. And so when you, for the first time, exercised faith in Jesus, the first time you had some indication of your need for him, what was happening was the Spirit of God was moving towards you before you even asked for it or wanted it to happen. And the Spirit was proving to you that you needed a Savior. That your obedience was never going to measure up. And there's two really encouraging things that come from that. Okay, perfect. So if you do believe the gospel... If you do believe that Jesus is who he says he is and you are trusting him as imperfect as it may be for your salvation, friends, I want you to know that that is only possible because of the work of the Spirit. It is because God has began a work in you that he is going to see through to completion. That means for me and for you that if there is anything in us that is grieving over sin that is desiring to obey and grow in obedience, that did not come from us. That is evidence of God's Spirit at work in us. People who are spiritually dead that have not been filled with the Spirit of God do not worry about their obedience or their lack of obedience. It's a sign that God has began a work in us. And it's also an encouragement that you and I are not saved by the strength of our faith, Because our faith is always fickle. It ebbs and it flows. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the object of it. The house in Jesus' parable was not saved because it was the most impressive looking house or because it was the biggest house. It's because of the foundation that it rested on. So when you and I, with our imperfect trust, when we trust in Christ, we're laying hold of a perfect Savior, a solid foundation a rock that can withstand the storms. Here's the second thing that the gospel does for us. Not only does it give us assurance of God's spirit being at work in us, it also radically changes our motivation for obedience now. See, if Jesus, if we're not fully believing the gospel, that we are accepted not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Jesus, if we are failing to believe that, then the reason that you and I obey is because we are working for God's acceptance, not from it. But if we believe the gospel, that Jesus has given us his perfect righteousness, that means that even on my worst days, I am perfectly accepted, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And so I'm now free to obey, not trying to earn God's acceptance, but because in Christ, I already have it. So I'm not motivated by guilt or by fear, But I'm actually motivated by love and by gratitude for what God has done. And that's how real change happens. Friends, if you are frustrated with yourself, 
If you have looked into the mirror of God's word and found yourself to be broken and your willpower continually fails, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to examine this morning, accept Jesus' invitation, examine what are you building on? What is the ground of your confidence? Is it faith alone and Christ alone? Or are you placing confidence in what people see and what people hear from you publicly? Or in your ability to hear a lot of Jesus' words and study them and admire them? Where's your confidence? Christ. The second thing that I want to invite you to do is not just to examine your foundation, but today. Maybe, maybe you have made an absolute mess out of your life. Maybe the last storm that came through showed you that your foundation was totally built out of the wrong things, that your confidence was misplaced. Friends, the fact that we're still breathing means that we have an opportunity this morning to forsake our confidence in all else and begin building a foundation of trust in Jesus alone. That's the invitation of the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these hard words. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from those two ditches that we talked about. We pray that we wouldn't leave paralyzed in fear. Lord, rather that we would see your warnings as a gracious invitation to come and examine what it is we're building our life on and to repent, to turn from those things that we're building on and day by day, moment by moment, choose to continue walking in trust in you. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to rest in this gospel of grace, that you would do such a renovating work in our hearts that obedience would become more and more natural, that we would see our desires change, our actions change, our words change, so that we look more and more like you. Lord, we know that it's all grace, our initial trusting of the gospel and our ongoing trusting of the gospel. Lord, we look to you with hope, with confidence that you who began this good work in us will see it through to completion. And when we arrive before your throne, your judgment seat, Lord, there will be no room for boasting, no room for talking about what we contributed, how we helped you out. All the crowns that you give us, we will turn around and lay them at your feet joyfully because it's your grace that does this from start to finish. Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for your love for us. We pray it in your name. Amen.